Welcome to this month's Expert Insights Forum, where we discuss self-harm in young people. Recorded in front of a live audience on the 22nd of February, 2017. On the panel this month, we have Gregory Carter, psychiatrist and conjoint professor at the Centre for Brain and Mental Health Research. Johnny Kieran, senior clinician and accredited mental health social worker, and our lived experience representatives, Samuel and Caitlin. Chairing this evening is Dr. Verrett Gordon. Please note, this content may be distressing to some listeners. So, Greg, I might start with you. There are a lot of different words. We used to have the word parasuicide, there's deliberate self-harm, intentional self-harm. Can you take us through the maze of terminology? So there's lots of areas in medicine where classification, nosology, naming traditions are mixed up, have changed over time, have got historical sort of precedents, certain areas if you're trained in North America or Europe. You know. But for this area, it's probably more mixed up and less clear than just about anything else I've ever worked with. So I'll run through some of the main names and concepts, not to try and resolve it for everybody, but just to uh, hopefully help ground us about the questions and things that you're going to want to ask later so that we can perhaps not be talking at complete cross-purposes because we use the same name for completely different things. So, I'll start with the ABS, Australian Bureau of Statistics, and what they call suicide. So, death by suicide, they call intentional self-harm. That's fairly confusing. Um, If you get treated at hospital for non-fatal self-harm, Uh, They call that um, hospitalised intentional self-harm. In broad terms, there's three sort of concepts. So there's hospital-treated self-harm. In Australia and New Zealand, we still call it deliberate self-harm. But in the UK and Europe, um, because of protests from people with lived experience uh, arising out of Wales, they decided to drop the deliberate part. And so in the UK, it's called hospital-treated self-harm. Um, and the objection there was, was that the, the people there with lived experience um, felt that um, the word deliberate was the reason or helped to perpetuate the very poor attitudes, the very discriminatory, stigmatising attitudes that they experienced from hospital staff when they were in emergency departments. So that was why they wanted to change that. Back before that, um, Kreitman talked about parasuicide. So parasuicide was the idea that people did behaviours that look like they might be suicide attempts, but that the underlying intentions varied enormously, from no suicidal intent to very extreme suicidal intent to fluctuating or ambivalent suicidal intent in the middle. Um, And and he was talking about hospital-treated cases. In America, North America, they still tend to say suicide attempt, hospital-treated suicide attempt to encompass that. But we know that many of the people who turn up at the hospital with self-poisoning or, or serious self-harm aren't suicidal or aren't very suicidal or aren't particularly suicidal. So hospital-treated deliberate self-harm, hospital-treated self-harm are the most common sort of expressions we use for those cases of folks that make it to the hospital. And even that's pretty um, confusing term. For the folks who make it to hospital, about 90% of all cases are self-poisoning. They're overdoses. And about 5% are harm that involves predominantly cutting, um, but some, some burning, some pinching, some other 
um, uh, self-harm things, and the occasional very severe self-harm, near-miss suicide, um, like hanging, but they're sort of less than 1%. Um, about 4 or 5% both take an overdose and cut themselves on the same admission. So that's why, the, you know, when you look at the median sort of estimates, they sort of overlap a bit. They add up to a bit more than 100. So what we call hospital-treated self-harm, hospital-treated deliberate self-harm, is mostly poisoning. And we don't use the term overdose. The United States still use the term overdose. In poisoning, we still use the term deliberate or intentional, depending on which state in Australia you're in or New Zealand, um, because that does help to distinguish poisoning subtypes somewhat. There's the chronic misuse subtypes of poisoning. So this is usually folks who are alcohol dependent or opioid dependent or benzo dependent or increasingly other sorts of dependent. So there's the sort of recreational misuse group. So there's a group who chronically misuse it. And those folks who just um, take too much GBH at a, at a party in Melbourne and all end up in hospital together. Well, it's reported with GBH. We're not quite sure what it is yet. Um, so poisoning, there's the intentional group, there's the recreational, there's the chronic misuse group, and then there's the iatrogenic group, the sort of things that we do when we poison patients by giving them drugs that don't agree to them or prescribing the wrong dose or having people who are very stable on their lithium become lithium toxic in this hot weather. Um, and then we have the occupational sort of poisoning. So folks, um, so our most recent one was folks who worked at a chicken preparation factory who got um, poisoned with chlorine gas because of a... Uh, problem with the maintenance of the, of the machinery. So in poisoning, deliberate self-poisoning makes a lot of sense. Whether it makes good sense for self-harm is arguable, and people have often got very passionate opinions one way or the other about that. But I'm just trying to show you that even when you restrict it to the hospital sort of treated cases, there's no real agreement on terminology, and people use terminology at cross-purposes. Then we talk about community self-harm. So these are the folks, and this is defined in two different ways. So these are the folks who self-harm in the community and don't go to treatment in any sort of uh, hospital or primary care or ambulance station or anything like that. And then another definition says, well, you have to encompass the folks who do end up in hospital. So for the epidemiologist, this is a sort of point of contention about how you define community self-harm. But for most folks, Community self-harm are those folks who harm in the community and don't end up in hospital or primary care. Community self-harm is bigger, more numerous, more repeated and more frequent than hospital-treated self-harm by a factor that we don't quite know, but three to five times is probably you know, a reasonable sort of estimate. So it's more common. Community is about equal poisoning and self-harm cutting. Hospital is overwhelming poisoning. There's a third group defined by the Americans which is gaining some sort of traction called non-suicidal self-injury. And you may read about that a lot at the moment because it makes its way into the paper. And this is the concept of self-injury that is entirely not associated with any suicidal thinking, planning idea. Used to, like, like a lot of self-harm, not as necessarily suicide attempts, but uh, of the other sorts, to regulate emotion, to make you feel better, to help deal with the situation rather than um, as a suicide attempt. Non-suicidal self-injury completely excludes poisoning in its definition, so it's only about injury and was trying to define a particular subgroup of behaviours and a subgroup of people who have that behaviour. Um, 
I won't go into all the science about that, but the overlap with suicide turns out to be much greater than the people who came up with the definition at first imagined. So folks who do non-suicidal self-injury have non-suicidal self-injury episodes, not all, but a decent proportion also do what we think of as more in the suicidal self-harm sort of attempts and as a group are still at increased risk for suicide compared to the general population. So calling it non-suicidal self-injury has its critics as well. So, so what I'm trying to highlight is that there's a hospital treated group, there's the community largely not treated by anybody group, and there's this other sort of subgroup called non-suicidal self-injury, which are the main sort of three. I might check with you, Johnny, there's, you know, often this kind of idea that there's an epidemic of, of self-harm in young people or that, you know, it's becoming more prevalent. Obviously, you've been a clinician for a long time. Is that your observation, that you're seeing more presentations of self-harm or are we just more aware of what has always been there, do you feel? I know that, like, statistically, there has been an increased number of people um, self-harming or... I mean, it depends how we define self-harm as well, but if we're going to look at the kind of um, some of the examples that Greg was given, I, I, think, I think it's kind of twofold. There are some people who are... Um, it's there, there can be a kind of, um, you know, repeated behaviour learned from, other, learned from peers that can kind of um, perpetuate kind of self-harm and shared understanding of how we, how we cope with tough times. Um, my experience has been certainly more young people talking about it and um, and kind of carrying it through. Um, there are lots of kind of different means in which young people seem to kind of have access to sort of finding out about self harm as well, like beyond kind of immediate sort of peers, but through kind of um, um, social media, etc. As well. Um, and so my experience of sort of in, in in terms of group therapy as well is that you know. The people who are doing it don't always share that they're doing it. They need a safe space to be able to kind of do that. And some of the spaces where people do share what happens, what they're experiencing, how they're coping, um, are spaces where they might, uh, there might be a, a kind of enactment of some sort of um, unhelpful or sort of punitive or punishing response to, to that. And that can kind of keep the behaviour going. So... Um, I think, on one hand, there's more happening, but on the other hand, it, people talking about it in the right spaces is helping kind of like understand and manage it, if that makes some sense, yeah. It's, uh, it's broad. And that idea of, you know, contagion or that, you know, mm. it spreads through peer groups, is that a real kind of phenomenon? Well, I mean, I think these guys might be in a better position to explain that. I, 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 I've seen that, certainly, but it's not exclusive to kind of some of the work I do. So some people will keep it very private and it will only be disclosed in individual therapies. Others will disclose it kind of publicly or on Facebook. You know, um, it's sort of, it's variable. Um, and I guess, you know, it depends on how you're doing it as well. Some people will cover their, if we're talking about deliberate self-harm through cutting, um, then some people will sort of find ways of covering, you know, on like upper thighs. Or some people will really wear it, you know, as a sort of symbol of pain. And so I suppose that, you know, will then depend on how kind of contagious that becomes. So there's quite a lot kind of to it. Ultimately, I feel it does depend, depend on the individual. So I feel like it depends on the individual whether they wear um, their marks as a flag or, um, they, or, or they hide them. Um, 
I know I've known both and and I've I've been one who have been someone who just hides them. Um, it's for me it's not something that I'm I'm necessarily proud of or or anything like that. It's it's something where it's more yeah, that's something from my past and, and I'm I'm wanting to move move forward and move on. Samuel, staying with you for a moment, what do you think for you made self-harm sort of an option for dealing with how you were feeling? It was initially a sense of release. It was the concept that you could you could find gratification in it, you could find a sense that it was almost like you were cutting a vent for it to just to just breathe and you could you could feel as if your body didn't have enough pores or or holes or i don't know vessels but you needed you needed to breathe and you just needed some form of release and and you needed to feel something you needed to feel that you couldn't feel pain you couldn't feel anything and so you needed to feel release i think um but at the same time, the thing that was scary as well is the thing that you didn't feel pain. You didn't feel the after, sensation. After, yeah. yeah, you didn't yeah. feel the sensation of a paper cut or the, the prick or, or anything. You didn't feel that. So that, to a sober mind, is also quite, quite scary. There is a culture that people find themselves being sucked into because it is a culture of within itself that you of people who don't feel like they belong within the world and within that culture you belong in doing an unhelpful behavior you belong it's become a culture within today's society that it's accepted to to do it like that people are supporting each other but it's also driving people to continue and it's not supporting because people aren't helping each other to stop Caitlin can I also check with you the kind of the way in which self-harm occurs like for you is there a meaning in the choice of how which way do you, what influences how the self-harm is expressed for you again because it's such a long history like a child who doesn't understand what it is like you're when something happens when a trauma occurs that you become introverted and you go within yourself and try and find something that relieves that stress, an obsession. So start with, like, well, I would tie knots in my hair and just pull them out. I was a biter. I would pull skin. That would just progress into the more, like, I thought that was innocent. Like, it was innocent things until the imagination of an introverted child with an extremely extroverted 
personality, when traumas continue to occur, you have to appease both sides. Like I'm a, like I'm a qualified chef. It's dangerous. I worked in Newcastle. I was a frequent flyer of the Mater Hospital. And everything was an accident. Oh, Caitlin, you're back again. Oh, Caitlin, so accident prone. For three years. Three years, it was just a constant. But there was that side of learning how to mask things. Society doesn't like self-harm. Society has very negative views against self-harm and I was an obvious self-harmer. So I turned to tattooing. It was painful and it was... Society likes tattoos. Society can deal with tattooing. Society can deal with ink. They can deal with... They can deal with people who look different. They can deal with opinionated views. They can, they can deal with that. They can, they can deal with that. But they can't deal with scars and they can't deal with burns and they can't deal with, they can't deal with the questions of like what's under there and is there more and what does your mother think? And like the judgments, like the judgments that I used to get like from like the doctors and the nurses, that was like, if you were my daughter, I've, I, the amount of times I've had that question, if you were my daughter. So when you leave a situation where you've kind of felt quite judged, how does that place you? Where does that place you in terms of your feeling about yourself and was, chances of harming again? Or? It was the third time, like it only took three times of going to the emergency room that I decided enough was enough, that I didn't need to be judged because it, like, I really judged myself, like, 10 times harder, 1,000 times harder on my daily life and my past and what I could have done right in my trauma past at four. It took me, like... 10 incidences in a row to even go to my GP, who I trust, because of a paranoid thought of, it's gonna happen again, it's gonna happen again, it's gonna happen again. Because that trust was taken away and trust is the one thing that can be just, so I think it's like the easiest thing that can be broken and taken away like in an instant. Um, clinicians often, see self-harm and then try and put a mental illness kind of framework around that. Is self-harm a symptom of mental illness or is, is it a part of it or is that simplistic? Is that not the whole explanation? That's a good question. There's lots of papers published trying to answer that question. Um, there's an association between um, the, the self-harm behaviour and mental illness, but many people who self-harm, particularly in the community, folks who don't ever come to treatment, don't have the sort of major mental illnesses that, uh, that Sam talked about. So they don't have bipolar disorder, they don't have schizophrenia, they don't have depression. 
they don't necessarily have um, substance-related disorders. But if you look at the population as a whole, those sort of disorders are overrepresented in that population as a whole. So there's an overlap, but it's not a direct equaling thing. Um, so I think Caitlin talks about, and that sort of judgmental attitude in the emergency department is a, is a very well-known phenomenon for a long time, that, you know, efforts to change are still in place. Um, and often in that situation, the problem is um, that the, 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 uh, some of the more judgmental folks, perhaps in the emergency department and other settings, don't give credence to the idea that there's any, without a psychiatric label, but that there's any distress involved in this. They don't see the distress part. They see the self-harming behaviour. And that's quite confronting to them. That's, that is against their cultural values. That is against their sort of... Um, what they're traditionally taught to do in an emergency department, to rescue folks who are in big trouble because some harm has befallen them. And when the harm is self-induced, that really challenges their view of the world quite strongly. And, you, and so you get this, you know, these, a clash of cultures. But one of the things I worry about is that the emergency department, psychiatric labels to one side, don't see the distress that underlies the self-harm behaviour. And if we could get them to do that better and empathise with that more and drop the judgement bit a bit more, I think there'd be a greater meeting of the ways. A theme for a long period of time has been um, like diagnostically labelling people who self-harm and seeing the self, deliberate self-harm as a direct sort of um, indication that someone has borderline personality disorder diagnosis. It's just one criteria of that diagnosis, yeah. So, so the tricky thing is borderline personality disorder um, has as one of its criteria recurrent self-harm or overdosing. And it's the only disorder that we classify that has that as a diagnostic criteria. And uh, the problem is that leads to a contraction of thinking one equals the other. But we know even if we look across psychiatric labels that um, any social personality disorder has a high rate of cutting. Um, a certain subgroup of folks with schizophrenia have a high rate of cutting. Um, and in my hospital, I've, I've seen numerous cases of folks who have schizophrenia and, you know, often untreated schizophrenia who are being called borderline personality disorder because of this sort of one-to-one -one, um, relationship people sometimes see with cutting and, and borderline personality disorder. So um, overdose and cutting occurs in a lot of psychiatric disorder. Um, a lot of folks who come to the hospital with poisoning or cutting do suffer from psychiatric disorders, often quite a number of comorbid psychiatric disorders. Um, and then increasingly, as we look at particularly younger folks out there in the community, there's a lot of young folks in the community who cut and cut repeatedly who don't seem to meet criteria for any of the you know, common psychiatric disorders that we associate with cutting, um, which is back to your thing before about, you know, is there an epidemic? Is it increasing? Is it communicable? Is it, uh, is it contagion? Um, and certainly uh, not well studied. We don't really understand it very well, but it looks like it probably is on the increase at that sort of community level. Um, Hospital-treated stuff hasn't changed, despite the ABS saying that it does. That's a, that's a problem of our poor data collection and artefactual error. But for the community ones, and perhaps what the Americans are trying to define as non-suicidal self-injury, that 
probably has been increasing. We've also been noticing it better and reporting it better, and that's been happening as well. But that looks like it's probably increasing, and that one looks like it probably is the one where contagion amongst usually, us well, the ones that they've studied has usually been sort of close social networks like school or friends from sporting organisations and whatnot. But increasingly, you're starting to see that maybe um, social media is a way of contagion um, rather than a way of reaching out for help. Is there a harm reduction approach that could be useful in the context of, say, cutting or other forms of self-harm? When I'm working in, with someone who's self-harming or deliberately self-harming, I mean, I, I guess to add to what Greg was saying, some of the groups I do, kind of, we look at all forms of kind of like what we would call managing a difficult situation in what might be an unhelpful way. And by unhelpful, we look at kind of something that's going to um, mean that, you know, after doing it, however long, maybe within an hour or a day, um, there may be uh, sort of some negative emotions attached to it. So first, so that can include more than, you know, all, all of what Greg was discussing, but it can also, including the alcohol and drug use, of which is a big part of youth culture, yeah? So we look at what, the, what what's happening, what the pros and cons of kind of that behaviour, to try and get a sense of, in a non-judgmental way, like, why are, we, why are we doing this? And there are usually quite a lot of pros. Um, people will often describe, I feel something, you know, I feel some release from a from an from a awkward or, un, or painful emotion, or I feel something instead of feeling nothing and numb. Is that something that people, you know, like there's a sort of numbness that people try and get away from? Um, so we're not, so I guess my approach would be right, okay, that's going to happen, it's continuing um, to happen. My, my approach is not going to be stop that right now. Um, it's certainly going to be more in the line, along the lines of, yeah, let's try and do you want to change this? Because, you know, if, you, if we weighed up the pros and cons, and they say that the pros outweigh the cons, chances are they probably don't want to change it. Um, so, um, you know, how are we going to manage it? You know, which might mean kind of addressing kind of how you physically attend to wounds. It might manage how you kind of cope, call a friend if you're drinking, or use condoms if you're having sexual experiences, things like that. That can be a way of harm minimizing. Or it might be, yes, the cons outweigh the pros, and I do want to have a look at how I can manage this more effectively and, and stop, start finding other ways to cope. And that's what we would do through, kind of, I guess, looking at other ways of managing with tough experiences you know, or distress. Um, and through that, harm minimization would occur. My question is to Sam and Caitlin. What are some positive experiences you've had in therapy or outside of that that's helped you to get to the place you're at now? I think one thing is definitely um, being treated as a co-pilot in the treatment um, and being and knowing each process. So um, talk to about each process, being being consulted on on each process. Um, sort of, I think that's sort of self-explanatory. I need it to be simple and I need it to be, I need it to be gentle. Like, like, it's almost like the people that I have worked with, like Johnny included, like, it's almost like for, the, for that moment in time, they've, they've taken their shoes off and they've stepped into my shoes. Um, but I've found a team um, within the past couple of years. It's taken a fair, fair bit of work, 
and finally um, starting to actually work on like we're like tapping into that like four-year-old self like hello four-year-old self like I'm learning how to be gentle because people like there are people who can talk to you about being gentle and it's about like finding those those people who will just treat you with that I don't know that that res that respect I guess and then I guess because I've had that I've had those experiences like all through life of labels, lots of different labels. I've even had the BPD label. There's so many labels and we don't talk about labels. No one talks about labels. So we're always in a relationship with somebody um, and right now we're kind of, I'm kind of in a relationship with all you guys, it's quite scary. And then, uh, but if you all left the room and it was just me, I'd just be in a relationship with myself. And the way that others treat us hugely impacts the way we treat ourselves. So if we've had sort of like punitive experiences growing up um, or in the emergency department or wherever it might be, we might then behave punitively to ourselves, yeah? And then to other people, so we learn both ways. And so the monkey see, monkey do is great. And we've used that in group therapy around the notion that if we're in a space for a block of six weeks and we're doing a kind of work that feels validating, safe, and not, not through the therapist alone, by the way, like it's like the whole group and how everyone's sort of treating one another. And then you can spread it out. Yeah, then it's, you might treat yourself gently and kindly and you know, be validating of yeah. oneself. We sometimes hear of parents searching the young person's room for, say, razor blades to remove the means of self-harm. Is that something you would recommend? I think it comes back to what we were just talking about. I mean, it's a kind of control, isn't it, um, to sort of take away... It's understandable why people might want to do that. I think I'd be working with a family to say that's understandable, you might want to do that in the same way it's understandable that your child might want to harm themselves. Um, and we need to kind of negotiate this and for it to be like Caitlin's saying like working with and not kind of doing too because that's going to have a huge impact on what happens next because if we think about a spectrum between control or controlling and out of control you know often people can need to get control by by, by some of these behaviors so we're, we're looking at kind of moving back to the out of control like i'm 25 i st i had to move back home because i got sick but because I'm still I'm a still active self-harmer, when I get in my states, mum now doesn't, because she used to do it when I was like, still had a bedroom door, I don't have one anymore. But <laughs> she, she would like manic, manic, go through my room, rip everything apart and just take everything. I was like, are you done? because you've missed everything. <laughs> like, silly. Like, do you think I'm sh Like, so now it's like when she comes in and she knows that I'm in a state, she'll sit down calmly and say, hand it over and I'll just give her the bag because I'm an adult now. Like, it's keeping that relationship because I, like, I need my mum. Like, I, I need her because I do... I have lapses in judgment massively and lapses in I, I hallucinate a lot and I get very paranoid and very delusional. So I 
don't always have my mind in control. So I, mum needs to trust me and I need to trust her. For parents, it's often very confronting and frightening to discover their child has been self-harming. How can we help them to have a more helpful response to their child's distress? So you're absolutely right. So for parents who have, um, you know, let's say a 12-year-old girl has just started high school and um, uh, what you said about the secrecy is, is often the case. Sometimes it's very overt, but sometimes the whole thing is secret. Um, keeping the cuts covered, um, cutting in places where you might not normally look, um, making sure, you know, clothes with bloodstains are washed without mum knowing, uh, hiding your knife or your razor blade at the back of the drawer, hiding your lighter at the back of the drawer, um, hiding your box of matches at the back of the drawer. The secrecy thing probably helps inflame the situation a little bit. Um, parents obviously want safety first, um, and, and I think what Caitlin said is probably right. They don't sort of understand. I mean, I mean a lot of people as outsiders who haven't had the experience don't understand what it's about, don't understand what the level of distress is about, don't understand what the sense of trying to get control or to, to feel something that's real or to let it out if it feels like it's trapping. So there's a lot of different experiences that people have. Um, but they're often incomprehensible to a lot of parents who are terrified. Um, and so parental responses, to start with at least, because um, it takes a while to engage them in the process as well, um, range from take them to the psychiatric hospital, lock them up, throw away the key. Um, this is too traumatic for my family. I've got other young children in the family. What if they burn down the house? Um, you know, so, you know, some reality, some catastrophizing. Hard to, you know, separate the two at the time when everybody's mad and angry at each other. Often desperately concerned about their young daughter who's doing this, but at the same time angry with them. And so everybody's emotion regulation is not doing well at the time. Um, and, you know, we often get to sort of... So for my service, we get to often see folks at the emergency department still while everybody's in the throes of all that. And so what you do then in terms of trying to calm things down and negotiate a piece and see if there aren't any, any pieces of common ground on which we can work is probably different to what you do later on um, when you're trying to work on... Is this a behaviour that we will tolerate? Is it a harm reduction sort of thing? Do we want it to stop altogether? Are there other alternative behaviours that can be done? Is there something more alternative that can be done in terms of understanding people's uh, feelings and emotion and need to control things that we can, as a family, do better? But you're right, at the front end, when it's sort of first disclosed, when parents first find out, one, that it's happening and often that it's been happening for weeks or months without them knowing, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's often a really bad week for everybody involved. And uh, mostly families are really concerned about the safety for their child and they think that self-harm equals suicide or something close to that to start with. Um, and, you know, when everybody's calmed down, trying to build in the idea that for the vast majority of these things it doesn't mean suicide at all. Yes, there's a risk and yes, there's an accidental risk and people have managed to set fire to the bedroom when they're just trying to, you know, um, heat up something and make a sort of burn mark. But, you know, you've got to negotiate all those things. Very different. All families have got different strengths and weaknesses around these things, but the initial sort of shock is often a pretty tough time for everybody, including the young girl who's been doing the cutting and has suddenly been discovered and feels bad because they have deceived their mum. They're often quite close to their mum and they, you know, they 
they're often quite devastated by the effect they've had on everybody themselves. So, you know, the first, the first disclosure of the sort of secret business is often really tough time. There can be a bit of a, can be a bit of a blame culture in families around, you know, what's wrong with you? What have you done? What's happening here with you? Um, and some of the work that that we do, that I do certainly, is about helping families understand the, uh, the a few things around kind of like again, like why it would be understandable to to to, to kind of engage in some of this behaviour, but also understand some sort of reali some realistic expectations about recovery. And with that, I use the recovery model, which sort of um, is really all about the notion that recovery from mental health struggles um, is not about kind of just sort of going to hospital for a couple of weeks and coming out brand new, um, which a lot of people um, have a sense of, and certainly in places I've worked, that has been the case. Um, so the idea that recovery is a kind of continuum and it's living, it's, it's functioning, existing, getting on with life while you still have symptoms, some of which might include symptoms or behaviours that are, you know, might be, might, might be symptoms of mental illness, maybe not be symptoms of mental illness, but that equate to struggles, so like living with the struggles, um, and that that will be a sort of road with some sort of peaks and troughs, and, you know, it's not going to be a kind of like, suddenly I'll be back to where I was before. We will, you will evolve as a family in that. The other part of that is, in some of the work I've done with families and parents, and primary schools more, is about kind of getting parents to kind of, you know, the notion of getting into model, like, model good self-care, and so actually teaching parents a little about, well, what does sort of good mental health look like or mental well-being instead of this sort of mental illness or diagnosis or label, you know? And through that, the family can learn a little bit and often do about how they can all look after themselves and understand, it, understand mental health more. Society has very particular ideas about people who self-harm and what that's about. If you could say something to the wider community about self-harm and how it does or doesn't define you and your identity, what would you say? Everything is a vicious cycle eventually and I think everyone has their own crutch and I think some people's crutch is uh, self-harming, uh, just like other people's is uh, alcohol abuse or uh, drug abuse or anything like that. So I think just like uh, you would ask someone with alcohol abuse to attempt to break the cycle, I would ask someone who was in the same position as I was to try their best to, to break that cycle. Um, because you, as hard as it can be, you can benefit from it. Um, and there, there is another side where you do find belonging in, you know, if if it is belonging that you're searching for. There's tons of possibilities that, that are out there, but it's the one thing that is just continuing the cycle of the circling of the drain, really. Um, and it's just, it's just going to worsen uh, and really just going to run out of flesh. Which I really subscribe to the fact that, you know, we've all got something we do that we don't necessarily feel great about. It might be in, like, a couple of packets of Tim Tams every couple of weeks, or it might be, it might be you know, drinking too much at the weekends, you know, certainly in the culture I grew up in, that was very common in Scotland, you know? Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's um, like, that understanding of kind of the broader sense of mm -hmm. kind of like what we do that's unhelpful or self-harm, yeah. you know? 
so that, you know, like, just kind of go, well, okay, I do that. I, I, I've got my stuff, and so, you know, Caitlin's got her stuff too, and we're both working on our stuff. I think, I think, though, to, like, to, to put this kind of stuff out there, you are putting yourself out there to be stigmatised, re-victimised, yeah. categorised and put into a box all in one by a whole bunch of people. And it's like, ugh. It's scary, yeah, yeah, yeah. Following on from that, what is it that we don't know that we should know? Yeah, um, I think it's, it will be up to the individual. I think no matter how much advice you as their um, health professional give them or how much you urge them as their parent or their carer or or whatever capacity you are to them, it's up to them to make that decision. You can't make that for them. Um, but all you can do is be a helping hand for them and be there as their safety net for them um, for when they, they make that leap. Um, because when they make that leap, it will be an awfully scary leap for them um, because they are giving up that tub of Ben and Jerry's every night. Um, and that's something that they lean on constantly. Um, so I think as long as, as long as you know that you're there for them uh, in whatever capacity you're there for them, then that's, that's the only thing that you can do, really. And I might just flip that around now to Greg and Johnny. If we were being outstanding, excellent clinicians and someone presented to us with self-harm, what's best practice? Like, what, what should we be doing that is going to be helpful rather than harmful to the people that we're seeing. Uh, taking up one of the points Caitlin said, and one of the things I try and work with our staff quite a bit is do not get discouraged because people come back again, that people repeat this behaviour. Don't call them frequent flyers. Um, hang in there um, because the time that will come, the time that may come, not for everybody, but the time will come for most folks, where they realise that that this might be something they want to change. Um, if, you know, if you've been too judgmental, if you've been too name-calling, if you've been too, you know, um, not doing your, your half of the equation during those times, it makes it a lot harder for the patients to come meet you the next time. And sometimes you've got to shop around, find somebody that suits you, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, the front end, I think, is really important. I've spent a lot of time working with emergency departments trying to get them to improve. Believe it or not, over 25 years they have improved but there's still an enormous way to go, no question about that. So the front end is very important. And then you've got the sort of therapy end. So we actually have therapies that, that um, you know, when patients are ready, uh, aimed at, um, you know, trying to... Most of them are aimed at trying to stop the behaviour, trying to terminate behaviour. So, so dialectical behaviour therapy for borderline personality disorder is one of the ones I've been most involved with. I've got a few points around it. One is... Um to like you know as GPs for example um, to try and kind of manage um, and support people in that setting as opposed to an emergency department setting can be really really helpful and there's also you know whilst DBT has you know I, I'm trained in it and I, I've, I, I really respect it as a therapy if you're doing whole as bull as DBT you, you can't be engaging in suicidal in, in, in self-harm while you're in therapy so some people who aren't able to do that and there are some people who find it a bit too behavioural. So there are other there are other modes of therapy. Now neither one is sort of I'm not going to say either one's better or worse. It's, it's all individual, um, and a lot of evidence would suggest that the therapy itself 
is less important than the relationship you have with somebody, so which we kind of we know in the in in, in the world of sort of psychological supports and modalities. Um, so I'd say sort of like continuity. If you so if you if you come across someone and you're working with them anyway routinely, like a GP, great, you know, like keep that relationship, um, and that can be a sort of place of safety plan in the first instance, um, and then sort of look at sort of what might be available to work with that, you know, in terms of individual or group therapy support, certainly, and bring the family on board if the person feels they want to, with young people, certainly, as well. But again, I mean, I work from a very relational perspective, as you can probably tell, and that's sort of really about, kind of, I mean, I really, really love that language, is it, um, Lee? Right. Yeah, curiosity, I mean, that's, so that, I, I, I kind of learned that about five years ago, and I'd worked for a long time in mental health, not, Realizing, well, thinking I was being respectful, but actually not being very respectful. And there's these two kind of, there's language that's used, there's dialogic and monologic. I don't know if anyone's heard of that. Monologic is a sort of this sort of, um, it's sometimes described as mini violence actually, and sort of like doing to, kind of telling people about and, you know, contradicting people and interviewing people, you know, and dialogic is the working with and being curious, a curious observer. And if we have space to do that, you don't have to do that. And you don't have to be doing psychotherapy to do that. Yeah, um, so. We're already out of time, so please join me in thanking our amazing panel. Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.